It's one thing to say we should support and stand alongside the Jewish people. It's quite another to do this. So what does it look like to show up for our Jewish friends and neighbors? We'll give you some practical ideas coming up. Welcome to The Land and the Book, the one-hour program that takes you all the way to the Holy Land without a ticket or passport. Our host is Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Geiger. Maybe you're wondering what's the next event on God's prophetic timeline. Why is that important, and, and what does it mean for you? Yeah, John, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this very issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and it will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free ebook is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135 year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. You know, Charlie, I'm thinking we have not done a book blast in a while. So today's the day. But maybe somebody's saying, What's a book blast? Yeah, that's a fun thing we do here at The Land in the Book where we share some of the books from guests that we've had on the program. So, John, what's in today's Book Blast package? You're not going to believe this, Charlie. Seven books. Seven. That's almost a mini library. What what are the book titles? Okay, we've got The Temple Revealed, a book looking at the true location of the Jewish temple, a concise guide to the Quran, answering 30 critical questions. Then there's the Moody Publishers book, An Unexpected Revival, Experiencing God's Goodness Through Disappointment. I love this one, The Harvest Handbook of Bible Prophecy. And then there's Jesus' final week, plus has the church replaced Israel? And we're even going to throw in a hardcover introduction to biblical Greek. Well, here's how you can enter to win our book blast. Send an email letting us know the one site in Israel you'd like to hear more about, a place where you really wish you could visit or visit again if you've been to the Holy Land. Send that email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. We'll need to get your email Sunday by midnight to enter in this contest. All right, seven books in this book blast. Look forward to hearing from you at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Let's dig into our look at current events. Story one, Vince Lombardi once started a Green Bay Packers training season by holding up a pigskin and saying, gentlemen, this is a football. He was pretty convinced the team needed to get back to the fundamentals. So how does this relate to today's Land of the Book program? Well, with all the strife in Israel and the rise in those who believe Israel is nothing more than a remnant of Western imperialism and colonialism, do the Jewish people really have a right to the land? Help us master the fundamentals, Charlie. Yeah, John, when we start getting Facebook posts saying Jewish only refers to a religion, not to a nation, uh, that's when I think it's time to get back to the fundamentals. Uh, The Jewish people are a distinct group. They descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and were a distinct ethnic group before they received the law at Mount Sinai or before they entered the Promised Land in the time of Joshua. Balaam referred to them as a people who live apart in Numbers 23. Because of our tradition of separating church and state in this country, some believe you can't have a nation like Israel that combines both political and religious elements. But to say that ignores the reality that this also describes most Muslim countries. Our secular society might separate them, but you can have both. Uh, The charges of Western imperialism and colonialism don't hold up to reality either. God promised Abraham the land of Canaan, 
and the Jewish people lived there for nearly 1,500 years. It was the Romans who forced the Jewish people out through a process of ethnic cleansing. But even then, the longing of most Jews throughout the diaspora was next year in Jerusalem, a phrase repeated for centuries at the end of Passover and Yom Kippur. And suggesting this is Western colonialism, well, that ignores the fact that the Sephardic and Mitzraki Jews who did not come from Europe are also part of the Jewish nation. The only nation in the world that can point to a divine title deed to the land is the nation of Israel. God promised the land to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, and he laid out specific boundaries in Numbers 34 and Ezekiel 47. The nation of Israel is a distinct ethnic group that's also tied together by a common religious heritage and a specific land which was promised to them. And in Romans 11, Paul makes it clear that God's gifts and his calling, including those to Israel, are irrevocable. God doesn't renege on a promise he's made. At one last point, Israel's the homeland of the Jewish people, but that doesn't mean others are to be excluded. In Ezekiel 47, where God restated the land boundaries, he also tells Israel there, you're to allot it as an inheritance for yourself and for the aliens, that is the non-Israelites, who have settled among you. Now, this was reaffirmed in the Balfour Declaration, the Mandate of the League of Nations, the UN Partition Plan in 1947, and in Israel's own Declaration of Independence, which states the new nation will ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or sex. Uh, The issues between Israel and the Palestinians are complex, but any discussion has to begin with the realization that Israel does have a God-given historic right to be in the land. Now, for most listening, they were going, of course we believe that, but uh, sadly, that's starting to get lost on a lot of people in our country. And we appreciate your bringing that to our attention, Charlie. Well, now that the Knesset is back in session, will they take up the judiciary reform bills that have caused so much turmoil in Israel, or will other issues take center stage? Uh, it looks like other issues might take center stage, at least temporarily. Israel's required to pass into law a budget by May 29. That also includes an economic arrangements law that they need to pass along with it. Now, if a budget isn't passed by then, the Knesset automatically disbands and new elections have to be called. Right now, polls are saying that if elections were held now, the current coalition would lose and a number of those parties would see their influence, the number of seats they have in the Knesset, decline dramatically. So they're less likely to push any other contentious issues until they pass the budget. Though, even having said that, Netanyahu's party this week issued a strong rebuke to one coalition partner's threat to boycott Knesset votes, saying, if they don't like the way Netanyahu runs the government, that party can leave. Hmm. Well, that's not likely to happen, but it's taking that kind of stern warning. Uh, This gives President Herzog, though, a little time to keep meeting with the different sides to see if a compromise can be reached on judicial reform. Uh, The flare-up between Israel and Hamas this week Well, that also pushed other issues aside, at least temporarily. So uh, the unity we're seeing right now in light of those rocket attacks by Hamas is only temporary. Uh, But it does demonstrate that at its core, most Israelis still see themselves as a unified country. Uh, The conflict with Hamas, the need to pass a budget, uh, they might give different parties some breathing room to hopefully find a solution to this judicial issue. Uh, The best thing that could happen right now, though, is for all sides to tone down the rhetoric on judicial reform and instead work seriously toward a compromise. 
If you joined us midstream, this is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who has traveled to Israel more than 100 times. I'm John Geiger. Speaking of travel, tourism in Israel seems to be on an upswing. Uh, As you and I get ready to head there in just over two weeks, what's the real state of tourism in Israel? You know, it is experiencing an upswing right now in spite of the country's political turbulence and external security challenges. In 2019, they actually set an all-time record for tourism, and then, of course, COVID hit. Well, in the first four months of this year, they're running just slightly behind that record year, and that's remarkable considering how the tourism infrastructure virtually shut down for two years. You know, guides and drivers lost their jobs, hotels were turned into COVID centers, restaurants closed down, tourist sites were virtually abandoned, but all of that's experienced a dramatic turnaround. Uh, In fact, when I was there just over a month ago, the sites were completely filled. Now, there are some disparities in tourism's comeback. Tourism among evangelicals has bounced back. Those who wanted to come and couldn't for two years are are trying to fulfill that dream. But all the recent turmoil and unrest has had an impact on some other groups. There's been a decrease in reservations for May among some groups from other countries. Uh, It could be the result of fears over inflation, uh, the rising prices of airfares, the, the fear of an impending recession, But whatever the reason is, uh, I'm still expecting to see full hotels and significant crowds when we're there, John. Uh, The one thing we do know is that we have a busload of individuals looking forward to being with us in Israel, and and I'm definitely looking forward to being with them and, and with you. It'll be great, Charlie. Well, archaeologists claim to have discovered a link connecting ancient Israel and the kingdom of Sheba. I got to stop right there. Everybody's heard of the Queen of Sheba, but if I were hard-pressed to put a finger on a map and say, this is the kingdom of Sheba, I guess I'd wander to the Arabian Peninsula. How far off would I be? You'd be right on target. In fact, Yemen today is where Sheba was in uh, the days of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. All right. Now, this discovery actually made more than a decade ago in excavations next to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. But what's new is they had found a clay jar on it was written seven letters from the time of the first temple period but a scholar has now looked at those letters again and he he believes it belongs to a dialect and a script that comes from the arabian peninsula apparently the seven letter inscription is actually showing the ingredients found in the uh, jar and it's it's a name of an incense mixture that was used in temple worship the scholar behind this new paper believes the inscription is in the sabian language and that came from the kingdom of sheba And the jar that it was found on uh, was found with several other jars that were dated to the 10th century B.C., which is the time of King Solomon. Uh, According to 2 Kings 20, spices and oils were among the goods stored in the royal treasury, and that's where this inscription was found. Now, this could all help connect the find to the account of the vision of the Queen of Sheba. Uh, In 1 Kings 10.10, it records, she brought Solomon an abundance of spices. Now, the author is not suggesting these jars contain the spices brought by the Queen of Sheba. But he is saying that jars from around the time of Solomon, which contained spices from the area of Sheba, were found in the royal treasury in Jerusalem. And John, that really is significant. Well, a quick reminder, we've got a book blast going on this week, and this week only seven books that you could enter to win. Charlie, where do folks go to uh, make their entry? Uh, That's easy, John. All they need to do is send an email letting us know the one site in Israel that they'd like to hear more about. It can be a place where they want to visit or maybe visit again if they've been to Israel before, but they need to send it to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's 
the land and the book at moody.edu and we need to receive that by Sunday midnight if they want to enter the contest. Seven books in this book blast including The Temple Revealed, A Concise Guide to the Quran, The Moody Publishers Book An Unexpected Revival, uh, The Harvest Handbook of Bible Prophecy, Jesus Final Week and Has the Church Replaced Israel. Even a, a hardcover introduction to Biblical Greek all a part of the book blast. Standing with the Jewish people. That's our conversation next on The Land and the Book. It's one thing to say, you know, we really should support the Jewish people and stand alongside them. It's quite another to actually do this. What does it look like to show up for our Jewish friends and neighbors? This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Hey, welcome back to segment two of the broadcast. Before we meet today's guest, let's you and I pause for this idea on creatively sharing the love of Christ with a Jewish friend. You ever wonder what the Bible is referring to when it talks about Israel's spiritual blindness? Let's ask Wes Tabor, who's an ambassador with Life in Messiah. What do we mean by that? Well, all non-believers are blinded by Satan, John. Second Corinthians 4 says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Mm-hmm. But God also judicially blinded rebellious Israel. You know, back in Isaiah 6, 2 Corinthians 3.15 says that there's a veil on their hearts when the Torah is read. Mm-hmm. And Paul says in Romans, this blindness is both partial and temporary. So in light of this spiritual blindness, what can we as believers do? Well, pray. Pray for the veil to be removed and for God's Spirit to enliven the truth. Uh, Paul prays in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Verse 18. What a great prayer. May the eyes of your heart be enlightened. That's Wes Tabor with Life in Messiah. Luke Moon is the deputy director of the Philos Project. Prior to that, Luke served as a business manager for the Institute of Religion and Democracy, and before that, as a missionary with Youth with a Mission for 12 years. Luke has lived, worked, and taught in over 45 countries and has advocated on a number of human rights issues along the way. He's also an ordained Southern Baptist minister. And with that, we say welcome to the land and the book, Luke. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, what kind of a report card would you give the evangelical church today if the grading criteria is our recent track record in standing with Jewish people at times of anti-Semitism? Oh, man, I would would probably give us a C, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know? A C is probably about where I'd put us. Not great, but also uh, not super terrible either given that I think most uh, evangelicals actually don't know if they have Jewish friends or neighbors. You serve with an organization called the Philos Action League slash Philos Project. How is, how is that different, by the way, from Philos Project, the Philos Action League? And how did this organization come to be? So the Philos Action League came out of the Philos Project. Uh, Philos Project, we've been around since 2014. Uh, we started really as an organization that was committed to raising awareness about the plight of Christians being persecuted in the Middle East and also encouraging Christian support for Israel as Israel being a model for the Middle East because it has religious freedom and pluralism and rule of law and that kind of thing. And rather than see it as the pariah of the Middle East, maybe it should be the model. 
And so we went about advocating for that kind of thing. And really in the end of 2021, we started the Fuels Action League largely as a result of being frustrated by the kind of overly digital responses to anti-Semitism that was taking place all across the country at the time. Luke Moon is the deputy director of the Philos Project. He's our guest today on The Land and the Book. Well, exactly how important is Christian support for the Jewish people and Israel? Are we overstating things a bit on this program, which we often do? Well, I don't think we're overstating anything. I mean, I think we you know, the the Bible is divided really into two people groups, right? One is Jews and the other is everybody else, right? And Mm -hmm. us people who are non-Jews, like myself, we are, you know, there's there's a verse that says, uh, you know, the root sustains you, you don't sustain the root, right? And so I think that the degree to which we understand our relationship with the Jewish people, I think, understands God's faithfulness to us who have been grafted in, but also his continued love for the Jewish people as a distinct mm-hmm. and unique people upon which God still has a plan and purpose. Well, let's get to the nitty gritty. What does anti-Semitism look like today in the United States? How does it show up? Well, it shows up in petty ways, like, you know, someone does a a swastika. There's a lot of, you know, swastikas in the bathroom stall at schools across the country that shows up. But there are more insidious ways it shows up. There's a group out there that has uh, been doing flyers, anti-Semitic flyers. They'll show up in Jewish neighborhoods, and these flyers will basically say, you know, here's uh, all of the the Jews who work for Disney, and Disney is is a, a nasty organization, and, you know, it's a nasty organization because it's run by Jews. And then they'll, you know, they'll have Bible verses on there and talk about the synagogue of Satan and all that sort of stuff, and that is becoming a real problem. And then the third way is just you know, there's actual violence. Um, you know, a, a Jewish man will be walking down the street with his kippah, and somebody will come up behind him and hit him on the back of the head. Hmm. Uh, that happens regularly. And it's really unfortunate that that is happening uh, to the Jewish people. And the majority of religiously motivated hate crime in the United States commit against Jews. I was drawn to a quote I saw at your website. Stop just talking about activism. Show up with the Philos Action League. Well, how big a problem is it in the Christian community, this idea of talking much but doing little? Well, I think it's a problem across the board. I think we've gotten kind of, I would say, placated by social media activism, right? Like, oh, I've done something if I've turned my, uh, you know, my Facebook profile uh, the color of the month or, you know, added some hashtag at the bottom, then I, I'm done. But, you know, I read in the Bible that we are spirit and flesh, right? And I don't see anywhere where we're digital creatures. <laughs> and so for me, it was very much about, you know, for all of the people who are turning their profiles different colors, we're going to be the people who show up. And I tell you, it makes all the difference in the world. And I, I suspect this is not the only area where if Christians started being more physically present, we would have a bigger impact than we do now. 
This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Our guest today is Luke Moon from the Philos Project. Luke has lived, worked, and taught in more than 45 countries. All right, you talk about showing up. How does the Philos Action League stand up for Jewish people? Give us an example. Well, if there's an anti-Semitic incident, uh, we have members, uh, about 2,500 members. Anybody can be a member. I encourage your listeners to become members. And if there's an incident within 20 miles of where a member lives, uh, we will email and text that member and say there's been an anti-Semitic incident near you. Would you bring a bouquet of white roses and a note card that says we are Christians and we stand in friendship and solidarity with you at this time? And they just show up at the local, we'll we'll tell you actually where to show up, the local Jewish community center or a synagogue or even the place where the incident took place. And it's very, very simple, and it just makes such a difference. The responses that we get from both the people who who get to do the act of, of love, but also from the recipients, it's amazing. It really is. All right, we're going to get to some of those responses after I ask you about uh, your choice of white roses as a sort of visual image. Explain the significance. Well, there was a group of young professionals and college students in Germany in the early 40s that became really bothered by what they saw. Not only the Nazis were doing to Jews, but how they were just destroying Germany. And they called themselves the White Rose, and they took the White Rose as their symbol. And so... In paying homage to them, we chose to adopt the white rose. I'm a fairly large bearded man, so I was kind of going with the Punisher look, but my young <laughs> staff was wiser than me and, and uh, chose the, uh, the white rose, which, which is smart. <laughs> okay, talk about some of the reactions that you have uh, observed, both in those who have delivered the roses, who have delivered that card, made that love statement, and those who have been on the receiving end. What can you tell us? Well, a great story. There was a, outside of Chicago, there was a Jewish cemetery that was vandalized where there were swastikas and, you know, Hitler was right, signs like spray painted on almost all the headstones. And one of our local members uh, in Chicago uh, got a bouquet of white roses and went to the cemetery. And he happened to be there delivering the white roses at the time in which a Jewish family was also visiting uh, the site because they had a loved one who who was buried there. And our member was able to give the white roses to this family. And they exchanged tears and conversation and just a full display of the, like really what you would hope would be the outcome of such a, a mm. like a serendipitous meeting, right? And um, it's just little things like that. I mean, I I tell people, um, you know, I mean, a lot of meetings, and I'll talk about the Fields Project, and I'll, I'll bring up the Fields Action League and the fact that we have to this date taken over 150 roses uh, in response to anti-Semitism, and almost without exception, uh, people cry. People get teary-eyed uh, on, the, well, on the Jewish side because so often they, they feel alone. Mm-hmm. They feel like no one is responding to them, and they're very suspicious of Christian intent, mm-hmm. you know, and this is, this is the way it's, we're just being friends, right? That's where we're starting at. And friends don't have ulterior motives other than just being friends. And let's start there. And it's just, it takes, like there's, you can see that just the weight come off their shoulders 
because they're so trying so hard to be affirmed by, you know, the woke crowd, and yet they're not. Mm. And Christians come along and bring a white rose and say, hey, we're friends. Yeah. And it just, it, it makes a huge difference. What about pushback? Do you get any of that from anybody? Uh, not really, other than the this group that is kind of our, our arch nemesis. They call themselves the Goyim Defense League. They're the anti-Semites who are, who are causing trouble all over the country. And uh, they're very frustrated by the fact that we are showing up in all of their places. And, you know, while they're spreading hate, we're spreading love. And, mm. and they just have a real hard time with that. I mean, I, I do get asked uh, regularly about, you know, are you trying to convert us and that kind of thing? And my answer is, listen, philos means friend in Greek, and that's where I'm starting from. Right. And that's what I'm doing. I'm just being a friend. What's the next step for somebody listening to this conversation who says, I want to stand up for Israel? Well, obviously go to philos uh, project, P-H-I-L-O-S project.org forward slash action. That's, uh, that's how you get there. And, uh, or you can just Google Philos Action League, and uh, it'll take you to the spot as well. And it's very simple. All we need is your phone number and your zip code. Obviously, your name helps too, but um, <laughs> and uh, because we, we track these incidences all across uh, the country. And unfortunately, John, there's an incident probably almost, if it's not every day, it's like every other day hmm. across the country. And so we are, we're constantly reaching out to people and saying, hey, will you just, will you go turn up? And um, listen, even if somebody cannot afford a bouquet of white roses, we'll even pay for the roses. And so it's, it's a very simple process, a simple way of of showing friendship and solidarity with our Jewish neighbors. I love it. That is a beautiful, beautiful story. Thank you, Luke. We hope to have you back. Luke Moon, Deputy Director of the Velos Project. Thanks for your visit today. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Hey, Charlie Dyer's got a whole new group of questions, Bible questions, prophecy questions. Who knows where they'll take us? I hope you'll be with us as we continue on The Land and the Book. got four segments to the land of the book. This is segment three. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. What's segment three all about, Charlie? Uh, John, this is where people write in with their questions on the Bible or theology or other issues that are just stumping them, and we try to provide an answer from God's Word. Yeah, well, here's a question for you. What's the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important, and what does it mean for you? Well, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses that very issue, The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135 year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. All right, let's get to our stack of questions, starting with Beth's. She takes us to John 8, where the teachers of the law and Pharisees asked Jesus about stoning a woman caught in adultery. The people are all lined up with stones in their hands, and it seems that they would have stoned her. However, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was stoned. 
Did the Jewish leaders and religious leaders execute the law even to death sentences? Also, when they delivered Jesus to the Romans, they said, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Well, these actions and the words of the Pharisees seem to contradict the uh, previous examples, the woman caught in adultery and stoning Stephen. How do we untangle all this? Well, the Romans were in control of the land at the time of Jesus, and they reserved the right to themselves for capital punishment. Uh, Though the religious leaders wanted to put Jesus to death, they had to take him to Pilate. And uh, when Pilate told the judges to uh, judge Jesus according to their own laws, they said, uh, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Uh, But what the religious leaders meant by that answer is that Rome wouldn't permit them to put Jesus to death. Now, That was the rule of law at that time. However, people still on occasion took the law into their own hands, just like people do today. In the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, the religious leaders were so enraged that they killed Stephen illegally. Something similar almost happened to the Apostle Paul in the temple in Acts 21. And then some Jews plotted with the religious leaders to ambush and kill Paul on the way to another meeting with the Sanhedrin in Acts 23. So there were times when people were willing to break the Roman law to get their own way. Now, how does all that fit into the account of the woman taken in adultery in John 8? Well, I believe the woman was being used by the religious leaders to try to trap Jesus. She was, quote, caught in the act of adultery, yet somehow the man got away. And then instead of stoning her themselves, they bring her before Jesus, where they spring their trap in verse 5. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Well, if Jesus said she could be stoned to death because that's what the law said, well, then uh, they would... uh, report him to the Romans and say, hey, this man's trying to rebel against Rome. If Jesus said, well, the Romans don't allow that, so she can't be put to death, well, then they would say, well, Jesus doesn't want to follow the law. So they thought they had him trapped. Uh, The woman was a test case, a political religious grenade that they tossed at Jesus, hoping it would blow up in his face. Well, Jesus's response was brilliant. And of course, as the son of God, that's what we would have expected. Hmm. Todd asks, can you explain the significance of the phrase, I have found a ransom? in Job 33, verse 24. Yeah, and in this case, uh, Elihu's speaking, and God never condemns Elihu for what he says. So I see him trying to point out to both Job and his friends where they'd gone wrong. I believe Elihu's describing the role that would later be called uh, a kinsman redeemer. That is, I see the angel he mentions in verse 23, not as a supernatural being, but as a messenger in the literal sense of the word. Uh, It's someone coming alongside the one who's being afflicted to serve as his advocate and mediator before God. He shares God's message to the individual to remind the individual, as he says it there, what is good for him in verse 23. But he also serves as the one who calls on God to be gracious and ask God to deliver him from going down to the pit. And he says that in verse 24. Now, as a result, in the context, I take the word ransom in verse 24 to be something provided by this messenger, this advocate to appease God. So God will then accept and restore the one near death. Now, we're not told in this section what the ransom is. However, at the very end of the book, I see what might be an example of what Elihu met. In chapter 42, God calls on Job's friends to offer sacrifices and then to have Job pray for them. And then God says, and I will accept his prayers. Uh, In that case, Job is functioning as that messenger, praying to God on behalf of his friends for God's forgiveness. Anyway, all of that to say, I think Elihu is suggesting he's the messenger who's helping Job understand and approach God to receive God's gracious deliverance. And though he doesn't explicitly tell us what that ransom is, I think it might be his intercession before God and asking God to bring justice and to deliver Job from what appears to be his impending death. That's Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gager. This is The Land and the Book, where we're glad to entertain your questions about the Bible, prophecy, or the Middle East anytime. 
Here's one from Peggy. I heard a Bible teacher say Noah's curse on Canaan in Genesis 9 affected most of Ham's descendants. Now, does this mean that Noah's curse affected the black race? Thanks for your help. Well, the one thing I can say with certainty is the event has nothing to do with the supposed curse on the black race. I say that because the one cursed wasn't Ham. It was Canaan. And Canaan wasn't the person from whom the African race came. They were descendants of Ham through Cush, one of Ham's other sons. So if there was a curse on a race, it was on the Canaanites who were the ones living in the promised land. Now, what did Ham do? And why would Noah condemn Ham's son rather than Ham himself? We're not told in the text, so we can't say for sure, but there are several intriguing points there that uh, give us some clues. Uh, The sin was twofold. It says Ham saw the nakedness of his father and he told his two brothers. Now, in our society, we have little sense of modesty, but that wasn't the case in Old Testament times. Modesty was, in fact, still is, a major part of culture in the Middle East. Ham not only went to a place where he shouldn't have gone, and saw something he shouldn't have seen, but then he bragged about it to his brothers. By comparing the sin of Ham with the response of Shem and Japheth, we see a major character flaw in Ham. Uh, The key issue then is why Noah would curse Ham's youngest son rather than cursing Ham himself. Now, one possible answer is that it seems to follow the principle of lex talionis, an eye for an eye. That is, Noah's youngest son, Ham, treated him shamefully. So Moses called on God to shamefully treat Ham's youngest son in response. Uh, There is, however, a second possibility. Whenever Noah's sons are listed, Ham always seems to be listed second rather than last. Uh, Normally, we'd expect that to reflect birth order, which would make Ham the second child rather than the youngest. And if that's the case, it's possible something else happened between the time Ham saw his father's nakedness and when Shem and Japheth came in to cover him. 924 says Noah woke and knew what his youngest son had done to him. It's possible that Canaan went in and physically or sexually abused Noah during that time. Canaan was the youngest son of Ham, and Noah saw what his youngest son, or youngest grandson in that case, would have done to him. And it's possible to see that uh, this was Noah's grandson, Canaan, who did something to Noah, and that's why he was cursed. Now, I tend to go with the first option, but the second's at least a possibility. In any case, the curse was not placed on Cush, who was the son of Ham from whom the black race descended. Marilyn writes to say, I'm blessed to hear the land in the book twice each week on WPEL. My question is about the Passover described in Exodus 12. It talks about keeping the Passover and that no foreigner or uncircumcised person shall eat it. So would it be okay to be present at a Passover celebration with a Jewish family, but not consume any food? Yeah, well, when God says no foreigners to eat the Passover there in chapter 12 of Exodus, I believe it was in specific reference to the mixed multitude who came out of Egypt with Israel, who were specifically mentioned in that same chapter in verse 38. Uh, Later, though, in verse 48, God does give a, quote, stranger, literally a sojourner, who wishes permission to celebrate the Passover with Israel. God told the people they were to let such an individual come near to celebrate it, and he shall be like a native of the land. The only requirement then given is that the males need to be circumcised so as to publicly identify with the God of Israel and the promises he's made to them. Now, in practical terms today, if a Jewish family invites you to join them in their Passover celebration, I don't see any problem with your doing so, including eating of the food. You do identify with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though you've accepted God's later revelation about the triune nature of this God. However, if the family's open to have you as part of their celebration, take it as a great honor and join in. Let them know that you're there to understand how they celebrate Passover and that you're honored to accept. My only piece of advice would be that you not use this as a time to share your faith in Jesus unless they specifically ask you to do so. Now, I say that because you're a guest at their celebration. 
Use it as a time to build a bridge of friendship and then trust God to open up other opportunities later when you can share your faith. Scott listens to The Land of the Book on 105.7 FM, KHCB in Houston. His question, how do the Old Testament feasts, there are seven of them, relate to Jesus? He says he thinks Jesus has fulfilled the first four feasts and will eventually fulfill the remaining three. What do you think, Charlie? Well, I do believe the seven Old Testament feasts relate to the person and work of Jesus. And as Scott noted, I think the first four were fulfilled at his first coming. And I see the three fall feasts pointing to the events of his second coming with uh, the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, marking the removal of the church and the beginning of the final days of awe, and then followed by the Day of Atonement when the Jewish people will acknowledge their Messiah, followed by the Feast of Tabernacles, which looks forward to the Millennial Kingdom. All right, it's been great looking at these questions, and if you didn't hear one of yours addressed, here's how to connect. The Land and the Book at Moody.edu. One more great segment next. It's Charlie's Devotion, right here. When it comes to prayer, it's easy to complain. But sometimes the reasons that our prayers aren't being heard is that because our lives are not lived cleanly. And that's the focus of Charlie Dyer's upcoming devotional. This is the land of the book, by the way. I'm John Geiger, segment four. Every week, Charlie opens the word of God and makes us feel like we're right there in the place of that passage, as he's about to do. First, though, I want to uh, invite you to listen to this testimony from a friend who's traveled to Israel and comes back with this uh, unique thought for us. My name is Ann Taylor, and I'm from Flower Mound, Texas. This is the second time for my husband and I to come to Israel. The first time was two and a half years ago, and we had to come back this time because there's so much to learn in this country, so many things about Jesus and where he traveled and the disciples and just everything. Um, we felt safe the first time. We really felt safe this time in spite of the world situation and the problems that have gone on even here while we've been here. There was never any doubt that we were safe and that we were being protected. What I've come to realize is I need to have more information about the geography and the history of this country. I learn a lot from the Bible, but I need to put it all together in a sequential order as far as the history is concerned. And so I've been motivated to go home and do that. All right. Appreciate that Holy Land experience. Charlie, we're headed to Ezekiel 14, I understand, in part three of our series, the Bible's most ineffective prayer meetings. Now, that's right, John. And this week finds us in a crowded room in Tel Aviv. And no, not the city on Israel's Mediterranean coast. This Tel Aviv is a small village along the banks of the Kibar River in Babylon. And seated near the front of this small room is the prophet Ezekiel. Facing him are a group of Jewish elders, senior members of the Jewish community in exile. These elders have come to ask Ezekiel to intercede with God and to seek a word from God for the community. It's possible they had heard about the famine in Judah, the same famine Jeremiah described in last week's ineffective prayer meeting. But whatever the reason, they were now gathered to, quote, inquire of the Lord, and hopefully to have God respond to their request for help. But before they can even open their mouths, God begins speaking to Ezekiel. 
and the news isn't good. Son of man, that's the phrase God uses to refer to Ezekiel throughout the book. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? God peered into their hearts and knew their idolatrous thoughts. They might have come to inquire of the God of Israel, but God saw their hypocrisy. As a result, Ezekiel is given a very specific message for them. This is what the sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. Getting right with God had to be their top priority. God then had Ezekiel remind them of the judgments God had threatened to bring against his people for disobedience and idolatry. These curses parallel those found in the Mosaic covenant in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. If a country sins against me by being unfaithful and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply and send famine upon it, or if I send wild beasts throughout that country, or if I bring a sword against that country, or if I send a plague into that land, four major forms of judgment, famine, wild animals, the sword, and plague. Now, the purpose for these covenant curses was to get the people to repent, to acknowledge their sin, and to cry out to God. But God just revealed to Ezekiel that he already knew the condition of their heart. These leaders might have come to say the right words, but God saw their hypocrisy. And as a result, God provides a very unexpected response to their all-too-public call for help. In verse 14, God makes a startling announcement. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in the land, They could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. Unless they miss the point, God repeats it three more times after each of the other plagues. But why did God single out these three men? Why name Noah, Daniel, and Job? Well, these three were three of the most righteous men who ever lived. And yet, in spite of Noah's righteousness, he was only able to save his immediate family from the flood. Let's skip over Daniel and go to the third individual for just a moment. Job was a righteous man, but he wasn't able to save his own children from death. However, at the end of the book, he interceded for his three friends to save them from God's wrath. These two righteous men were able to intercede for the lives of some, though they weren't able to help others. Now, what about Daniel? While some try to connect this name to some mythical individual in pagan texts, that seems highly unlikely. The prophet Daniel was a righteous man living in Ezekiel's day. More to the point, by the time these elders gathered before Ezekiel, Daniel had been serving in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar for over a decade. Likely, many Jewish captives in Babylon felt secure, knowing Daniel was on their side and that he had the ear of the king. Surely, Daniel would put in a good word for his own people and his hometown. Nebuchadnezzar would have to pay attention to Daniel's wise advice, right? Well, if last week's prayer meeting with Moses and Samuel was significant, imagine attending a prayer meeting and then having Noah, Daniel, and Job walk through the door. These were members of the praying Pro Bowl when it came to seeing the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man in action. And that's why it's so shocking to hear God say that even if all three were praying alongside these leaders in exile, it wouldn't be enough to stop Judah from going down to defeat. The nation's sin was simply too great. Now, wrap your mind around that thought. God selected Noah, Daniel, and Job because of their similar characteristics. 
Each was a man of righteousness who overcame adversity and who also had some success in interceding for others. But even if these three pillars of righteousness prayed together for mercy in a land under judgment, their praying for others in that case would be of no avail. God said they could save only themselves. Now, as we stand here in the back of the room, we sense the awkward silence as Ezekiel finishes sharing God's answer to the petitions of these elders. A few cough or clear their throats as if getting ready to respond, but then realize there's really nothing more to say. Gradually, they start to stand and quietly begin to shuffle out the door. We follow them out, leaving Ezekiel sitting alone with his thoughts. Now, as we prepare to return home, we feel somewhat ill at ease. What made this time of prayer and petition so ineffective? God said it was the reality that these elders, and by extension, those in Judah and Jerusalem who were also about to be judged, had set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Expecting God to respond to their requests while harboring sin in their heart was a recipe for failure. Uh, The writer of Psalm 66 said it this way, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And David framed the issue in a similar manner in Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Do you want your prayers to be effective? Do you want God to respond when you pray? Well, then perhaps the first place to look is into your own heart and make sure you're not harboring any sin. Ask God to give you clean hands and a pure heart so your actions and your motives don't get in the way of your prayers. A good place to begin might be the final two verses of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Idols, stumbling blocks, sins of the heart. Boy, these are certainly issues for followers of Jesus to be working through, as you've suggested, Charlie. But for that listener right now who says, man, I'm not anywhere near that. I, I know I'm not right with God, and Jesus is not at the center of my life. What do I do? Charlie, how would you counsel them? Well, I'd say the first step is to go to God in prayer right now and, and pray something like this. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've done wrong. And I do know your son came to earth and died to pay the penalty for my sin. And I've never trusted in him yet, but right now I want to put my trust for forgiveness, my trust for salvation, for eternity in his hands. Uh, Lord, forgive me of my sins because of what your son did for me when he died for my sins. And I turn from my sins to him. I want to trust him now as my savior. And I, I thank you for doing that because I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And you know, if you'd like to talk with a volunteer about that prayer that Charlie's talking about here, they're glad to speak with you at 888-NEED-HIM. A volunteer will happily pray with you and answer your questions at 888-NEED-HIM. Well, our time always goes too quickly. It's always fun to have you with us, though. Hey, share our podcast with your friends. Let them know they can find it at thelandandthebook.org. For Charlie Dyer, I'm John Geiger. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. See you next week.